Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. everybody, and welcome back to New Books in Secularism. My name is Carrie Lynn Evans. I'm joined today by Dr. Robert Nola of the University of Auckland, who is a former student and colleague of Dr. Bradley's. Dr. Bradley can't be with us to discuss the book in person, so I was really happy that you were able and willing to take this on. So just to... Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in Secularism. My name is Carrie Lynn Evans. I'm joined today by Dr. Robert Nola of the University of Auckland, who is a former student and colleague of Dr. Bradley's. Dr. Bradley can't be with us to discuss the book in person, so I was really happy that you were able and willing to take this on. So just to start, can you tell us a little bit about yourself, Robert, and how you came to work in this field? Well, um, I've been an atheist most of my life, despite having a Catholic education when young. I think it was the Eucharist that did Catholicism in for me. Uh, I, I, I was quite impressed by it as, um, you know, perhaps there right uh, in the church was the presence of uh, the body and blood of Jesus Christ. But I came to reject that. I thought it was silly. And it was a fun and jokey ceremony in the end. Uh, eventually, I read Bertrand Russell's Why I'm Not a Christian, and that helped me get over the rest of Christianity. And then I kind of forgot about it. Um, I didn't pay much attention. But about 20 years ago, as religion became more and more prominent in our lives, I became, to adapt a phrase of Gorgi Dahl's, I became a born-again atheist. <clears throat> and so I've been a bit, bit more active than I used to be. Uh, and so I've looked at um, various things uh, in connection with religion and atheism uh, through rationalist associations and so on how they affect life, and so on. Now, um, I am not a traditional religious believer of the sort Ray Bradley used to be, and a lot of his book uh, attacks that. Um, What I've got interested in more recently is explanations that come out of psychology and evolutionary psychology as to why people believe any religion, not just Christianity. So you could look at Freud, for example, who was a committed atheist, and he thought that um, our belief in God, a providential figure, was really caused by our wish to have providential figures in our lives, even though we probably didn't have them. Or someone like David Hume, who thought that the existential threats to our existence were really a source of religious belief, such as our fear of death. And then there are anthropologists like Stuart Guthrie, who wrote a book called Faces in the Clouds, which is actually a phrase from Hume. He put emphasis on our propensity to anthropomorphize the world. So you see the world as a sort of um, living divine thing as well as uh, a physical thing. Others have looked more recently into cognitive mechanisms, which gives us belief about agency and thus God and so on. So it's that kind of material I've looked into. I've not looked at uh, uh, traditional arguments with respect to religion. Of course, um, that that's something that one can do. So I come at all of this from a different point of view uh, from that of Bradley. Okay, that's fantastic. Uh, I can identify a lot with a lot of that myself personally as well. I do have a little bit more of the Christian background like Bradley does, but I came to my own thinking without uh, reading atheist thinkers, traditional atheist thinkers so much. So so turning towards the book, are you able to give us uh, a bit of a sense of the background of this book and how it came about? Well, most of the book does deal with traditional issues of atheism and religious belief, but chapter one is unusual in that Bradley gives a personal account of his contact with religion as he was a young boy and what he rejected of it as he grew up. Mm-hmm. So his background, uh, well, he grew up in Auckland, New Zealand, and had a Christian fundamentalist background as a member of the Baptist community and the Baptist church. 
but he seemed not to readily accept what was said and wanted reasons for it. Simply telling him just to believe it or to have faith was not enough. He wanted reasons. So in the young Bradley, there was a kind of precocious rationalist at work. So he began to question things in the Bible, um, uh, the historicity of Christ, what was claimed in the way of miracles, and so on and so on, the, the whole Christ story. One of the sad things that comes up in the book is that his parents um, countered the views of his son by burning some of the books he was reading and, and also giving him beatings, and that, that rather surprised me. Uh, but Bradley grew up to become a school teacher. Then he studied at university and got a master's degree in philosophy. And then he went to the Australian National University to do a PhD on the topic of free will and logic. And this then led him to a number of different research topics when he became a, um, an academic in philosophy. His main emphasis were in logic, philosophy of logic, metaphysics. He wrote a book on the early philosophy of Ludwig Wittgenstein and so on. Now, I encountered him when he became, when he was quite young, a professor of philosophy at the University of Auckland, and I was a student. And then I went away and did my PhD and came back, and he hired me, and I've been in Auckland ever since. Now, uh, Bradley then went off to Simon Fraser in Canada, and he didn't do very much on religion. I think he entered into a few debates here and there, but eventually in the 1990s, he got more active again and debated various people and wrote various articles, and his book, uh, The God's Gravediggers, is a culmination of work he's done since he has retired. He retired from his position at Simon Fraser and came back to live in New Zealand, just north of Auckland. Um, I should also add that Bradley was an avid skier and won over 60 medals in major events around the world. Oh my goodness, <laughs> that's amazing. Yeah, so skiing and philosophy was his, was his big thing. <laughs> That's wonderful. Well, thanks for sharing that. Chapter two uh, establishes, uh, after the first chapter, which gets into his, his personal motivation for the book, uh, chapter two establishes his approach for analyzing the veracity of religious claims on the basis of um, the methodology of logic, which you alluded to being uh, one of his primary focuses. Um, and so this is the method he uses throughout the book. And he explains how one can use logic, like applied mathematics, to test the validity of an argument on the basis of whether it's a conclusion that de derives from uh, a succession of logically sound premises. So he kind of lays that out for us. Did you want to say more on that? or? Uh, well, just a little. I, I think when Bradley became a philosopher, he was really interested in how you actually apply logic to reasoning. And that takes you into issues of philosophy of logic as well. So he wrote a book with someone else called Possible Worlds, where he looked into possible worlds reasoning. And I think this logical impetus in Bradley uh, was quite strong and infused everything that he did. So but now I could just mention the Hume argument. Um, Hume simply said somewhere that um, there are different religions, they rival one another, and insofar as they rival one another, they discredit one another. And that's all, rough, that, that's all roughly Hume says. Now, I, I think when people confront the various religions of the world, they might be puzzled about the fact that they are in conflict with one another, and they look for the one true one. Uh, uh, but of course, Bradley and Hume make the point that, well, perhaps none of them are true. They're just all false. And here you might, you, you might have right. in mind atheism as another option, but that's not mentioned. So what um, Bradley does is explore Hume's argument in a quite original way. And I think this chapter, chapter two, um, is quite important. So you could look at various things that are said about Jesus. For example, uh, you, you get contrary claims. Uh, one is that he uh, died on the cross, which is the Christian view. But if you read uh, the Quran, it says that Jesus didn't die on the cross, he went straight to heaven. And if you read other people like D.H. Lawrence, he said Jesus uh, fainted or passed out on the cross, and so on and so on. Uh, when, I'm not suggesting that Lawrence 
is a religious figure of some sort, though he may have thought himself right. in that way. But, but w- what you get is contrary claims. Uh, they can't all be true, um, and they could all be false. So you've got these conflicts. Now, what, he, what Bradley does is analyze the arguments that are going here, going on here, and tries to present uh, a reasoned account. And that's something that's rather difficult to explain in an, in, in an interview. But um, what you start off with is the claim, all the different religions make some claims that are contrary to one another, and you want to draw the conclusion, each religion discredits every other religion. So how does that follow? What Bradley does is try to set out an argument based in probabilistic reasoning that each religion discredits every other religion from the fact that you can establish that that they're contrary. So uh, what we've got is for every religion, uh, you might find some evidence for it, but this evidence conflicts with other religions. So when you generalize on that, you find that every religion has got evidence which makes every other religion uncertain, and so they all discredit one another. Now, Bradley takes you through the probabilistic reasoning that he has in mind here, uh, and that's quite interesting, so it's something readers of the book might want to look at. But I think it's a very important claim because, you know, we are confronted with different religions around the world, and you look for the true one. But bear in mind, they might all be false, Mm -hmm. and that's Bradley's view. They're all equally improbable. That's right. He also talks a little bit about um, uh, various religions' tendency to use or point to miracles as being the evidence for the truth of their particular take on belief and how, and how um, these, these miracles essentially cancel each other out as well, I think, if I, if I understand correctly. Yes, well, if you have a miracle that supports um, one religion, it may actually not support another religion. And so each religion will have its body of miracles that support it, but other religions are not supported by them, or they might have very few miracles. So one way Hume does express this in terms of miracles, but Bradley expands it to take any kind of evidence, whatever, that you might want to have. And the evidence that that you've got, that, that that the religions are in conflict with one another, that will, given Bradley's reconstruction of the human argument show that each is discrediting the other, each makes every other improbable. So they're all equally improbable. That's right. In fact, in chapter three, he he talks about the sheer number of them. He points to an article by H.L. Mencken uh, in his 1922 essay entitled Memorial Service. uh, Mencken lists 190 gods revered throughout history, all of whom were, quote, of the highest standing and dignity, worshipped and believed in by millions. He mentions that, you know, many had human sacrifice, or, well, some at least had human sacrifices made to them. So, um, uh, and then he points out that all were theoretically omnipotent, omniscient, and immoral, but of course now all are dead in that nobody believes in any of them. Right. Well, (laughs) this is quite interesting. The American satirist, H.L. Mencken, wrote this um, memorial for all these gods, uh, and he lists over 190 of them, but because there's a lot more you could add to it. So there's there's Zeus, Baal, Wotan, Thor, and so on. And he says all these gods uh, were held held people in thrall, um, thousands of them or millions of them, but they no longer do. Um, they have, uh, we cease to believe in them. Uh, so you could draw the conclusion, as Mencken does, that today most believers in God are really atheistic towards these other gods that Mencken lists, all the other 190 of them. Um, and Bradley draws on this. But uh, they talk about the death of gods, and that's a phrase that um, Nietzsche used as well. Uh, now, by that I don't think they mean that they once lived and are now dead. That would be the normal sense given to the expression, God is dead. Um, So you need to disambiguate what's going on here and say that people at one time believed that they existed, but they no longer believe this, and it's best to make that explicit. So the God is dead phrase needs a bit of unpacking. So whatever evidence people might have had or thought they had, or whatever explanatory power these gods might have had 
People no longer accept this evidence as conclusive or that they explain anything. Um, Bradley's view is that um, the current God of Christianity, the God of Islam, the God of Judaism, uh, I won't mention the Buddhists here because it's a bit unclear whether they do believe in a in a monotheistic God, though there are plenty of divinities around. <clears throat> but uh, Bradley wants to treat all of these as fictions. Now, if you look at the play Hamlet, there's lots of fictional characters in there. There's Hamlet, there's Rosencrantz, Goldenstern, Gertrude, and so on. But they're all distinct non-existence. And so Bradley's view is that the current God of Christianity, the God of Islam, the God of Judaism, they're all non-existent, but they're different non-existence. Um, <laughs> I like that. I like that. <laughs> yes. Well, in, in this chapter, he goes on to define carefully what atheism is. And atheism, I agree with Bradley here, is simply the claim that no God exists. If you were to take all the things that are in the universe, God is not to be found amongst them. Uh, and so monotheism is a view that one and only one God ex- um, would, would be the opposite, one of the opposites. Only one and only one God exists. Polytheism view that many gods exist. And in fact, Hinduism, as far as I understand it, there are millions of gods around. So he's careful with these definitions. And then he says an atheist is a person who simply believes the claim of atheism, namely that no God exists. I think he also distinguishes deism, which is an interesting view. God exists, and the only thing God ever did was create the universe, but then he stepped back and has taken no part in it ever since. So there are no miracles. He didn't uh, send a holy book for people to read, and so on. Whereas in theism, uh, all those claims are made. Now, deism was a very influential view in the 17th and 18th century, and a lot of scientists were deists. Um, The world is now quite an independent thing from God, even though God started it off, he just left it alone to run um, the the way it has. Bradley also talks about naturalism, and that is different from deism. In deism, there's a God. In naturalism, there's no God. what naturalists believe is that there's something like a space-time framework and there are things that exist in it, there are processes going on. So in the space-time framework, you'll find electrons, you'll find gravitational fields, you'll find ourselves, and so on. Um, Naturalism should also include a bit about uh, the human social sciences as well. But everything it postulates, it's locatable in a space-time framework. Supernaturalism is the view that there are things that exist beyond the space-time framework. And this is something that does exercise me because you might ask, what is a number? Can you locate the number five somewhere in the space-time framework? Or is it an abstract entity? So you might be slightly non-naturalist in thinking that there are abstract things like numbers and properties and universals and other things philosophers talk about. But um, the really important thing in religion, as far as supernaturalism is concerned, is that God exists independently of the naturalistic space-time framework. This is to be distinguished from pantheism, um, in which the pantheistic God, as far as I understand this, is not supernatural. God is somehow or other identified with the world. So... You could be religious and a pantheist and try to be a naturalist at the same time, as did Spinoza. So Bradley lists these things, and uh, they're important important distinguishing things to bear in mind. But then he sets out what his program for the rest of the book is, and he looks at different ways in which um, God deserves to die. We should simply stop believing in him. And the reasons are, first of all, historical. Secondly, the failure of of philosophical arguments for God. And then the moral case against the existence of God. Bradley spends a lot of time on that. As far as the historicity of Christ and so on is concerned, um, Bradley doesn't spend a great deal of time on that, as far as I could detect. Um, The evidence for Christ existing is not all that great. 
But he does mention the archaeological work of people like Israel Finkelstein, who's tried to make a check against the claims of the Bible about the history of the Jews, and it doesn't do too well. So there's a lot of research going on about historical claims in the Bible, archaeological claims, whether they can fit them or not, and so on. And Bradley doesn't say too much about that, but he does say quite a bit about uh, what the Bible says of Jesus and uses it as a source for his arguments. So that's roughly the gist of chapter three, quite interesting, covers a lot of interesting material. It does. Um, I, I'm aware that uh, currently there is a, a massive body of, of scholarship uh, being done on the archaeology of the historicity of Jesus. So, um, yeah, personally, I don't feel like we need to get too much into that. Um, no, I kind no. of feel like it's a bit of a side issue, whether or not the man existed or not, is not going to change my feeling about about the existence of supernatural beings. But um, there was one uh, part in, uh, in chapter three there that I just thought was a really excellent point because um, Bradley was discussing this question of how to understand the Bible. And he, he points out there's logical problems with seeing it both as an inerrant, uh, you know, perfect word of the Judeo-Christian God, but there's also yeah. problems with seeing it as figurative as well. He says, and I'll quote him here, didn't God know that most of his readers would construe his words literally? If so, <laughs> he is not omniscient. Or didn't he care about their misunderstandings? If so, he's not perfectly good. Or didn't he have the linguistic competence to say what he meant? If, no, if so, he is not omnicompetent. And I just, I think that that sums it up perfectly. <laughs> Those three propositions seem to be mutually exclusive to me, and they seem to cover all of the ground. And I've never been able to answer that question for myself. But, um, but yes. Yes. Yes, that's one of the things Bradley does. He likes to set his arguments out in such a way that you've got a number of claims that can't all be held together. And, that's right. and and you've got to give up on one of them. And he does this several times for the book, and it's quite skillful. That's right. Yeah, That's right. Yeah, mm. that's that logic, that mathematical logic coming back yeah. to uh, be applied to these questions. It's great. Right. Um, so I'll move on to Chapter 4. He, he looks at the ways philosophers have attempted to sanitize the uglier versions of God that emerge from traditional theism. Uh, he examines three of what he considers the most important philosophical arguments for the existence of God and shows, in his words, how shoddy they are, mm. explaining that they not only, quote, fail as deductive proofs of any God's existence, they also fail to show that the existence of any God is probable, let alone plausible. So, Robert, are you able to take us through those? Well, um, this is difficult territory in an interview when you try to set out arguments, especially in the case of Bradley, where he does set them out as arguments. And I'll try to do a little bit about this. But one of the things I found interesting is that Bradley quoted a, a Christian philosopher of religion, Peter Van Inwagen, and the quote is, I require God's help to find them, the arguments of traditional Christianity, I, f I require God's help to find them convincing, even to find them faintly plausible. Now, here's, here's a philosopher who uh, is casting serious doubt on rational arguments. Now, if you look at the Bible, there's no arguments for the existence of God. It's just straightforward assertion. But uh, right. by the time you get to the 12th century, people like St. Thomas Aquinas wanted to put um, Christianity on a rational foundation or a better reasoned foundation. And the reason was that um, at the time there were some important Muslim, Muslim philosophers who were doing a much better job putting Allah on a rational foundation. And so he, he wanted to counter them. Now, Aquinas was aware of this distinction, and Bradley notes it, that um, there's a, an important distinction between revealed uh, religion in which you have faith in God and natural or reasoned uh, religion. Now, Aquinas doesn't want to do away with uh, faith or, or revealed religion, but he wants to supplement it. But Bradley's claim is that when he tries to supplement it with rational arguments, the whole thing is a failure. Now, there's a whole stack of arguments that philosophers like to look at. I don't know how many there are, 30, 40, 50, um, but, but there's some traditional ones, the ontological argument, 
um, the argument, uh, the, the cosmological argument, the argument from design, and so on. Now, do you want me to make some comments about each of these, or just one of them? Sure. Yeah. Oh, whatever you um, think. That'd be okay, great. then. Well, the ontological argument was put forward by somebody called St. Anselm in the 11th century, and I think, actually, Aquinas didn't agree with it. But, but I can give you the argument, and this is a quick paraphrase of Bradley, and um, it goes like this. The first premise is, any person can conceive or think up a being such that nothing greater than it can be conceived. That's premise number one, so you, you've got to go back and examine that. Premise number two, hence a being nothing greater than which can be conceived at least exists in our imagination or understanding. Thirdly, to exist in reality is greater than to exist as a, as a concept in the understanding. Fourthly, it is contradictory to suppose that a greatest possible being can exist in the understanding but not in reality. Therefore, and this is the conclusion, a being than which no greater can be conceived exists in reality. And you need, as Bradley points out, an extra premise to say that this is God. Now, uh, <laughs> the mind can boggle over this one, mm -hmm. and there's lots of boggling going on down the centuries. Um, <laughs> and uh, a philosopher in Australia I know has written a whole book on this, so there's a lot to be said. So you can ask of this, you know, I gave you premises one to four. Does conclusion five really follow? And then what about the proof, the uh, the truth or falsity of each of the premises? Now, as Bradley says, it's a kind of magical argument which conjures up entities all over the place. And he shows the following. You could construct an argument uh, which um, establishes the devil. Now, you define the devil as a being no more evil than which can be conceived, and you plug it into this argument, and, you, and, you, and you've got the existence of the devil. And then one of Anselm's commentators, uh, a, a person called Guanilo, gave this ex example. You imagine a perfect island, an island no more perfect than which can be conceived, so it must exist. So you can, you can see that this argument can produce entities all over the place. Now, um, as I mentioned, there's, there's lots of commentaries on this, but uh, let's just take Guanilo's counterexample, see, see what we can make of it. Suppose you think up something like an island. It's got a few nice beaches, nice restaurants, nice bars, and so on, good surf, and so on. And it exists in your imagination, let's say, but, but not in reality. So far, that, so, so, so far, there's no problem. But suppose I now say, think of an island which has all the perfections, it is greater than which cannot be conceived. There's better sand than anywhere else, warmer water, more tropical fruit, and so on. Now, uh, the issue uh, here is, does such a greater than which island cannot be thought of suffer from the imperfection of not existing? I can dream it up in my understanding, but it's, is it still imperfect? And that's one of the premises that you rely on. Um, it's an imperfection um, to exist in the understanding only and not in reality. And is that right? That's one of the things you can attack here. Um, and Bradley look, looks into that. So yes, you can imagine um, things greater than which uh, can't be conceived, but um, you've got this tricky premise that says, um, well... Uh, they're going to suffer the imperfection of not existing, and so they must exist. <laughs> they're going to be great, a greater than which cannot be conceived. Now you can imagine you can imagine how philosophers are going to try to work out what's going on here. And Bradley gives us some good guiding points. So that's one traditional argument. Uh, many some philosophers have used it, like Descartes, um, and it comes in different forms. The, cos the cosmological argument. That's something that I think people can get a grip on. And you can set it out quite quickly. The, uh, this is a simple form of it. You, you think that everything that exists has got to have a cause for its coming into existing. Is that right or wrong? <laughs> and then you, are, then you say, well, look, the whole universe is something that exists. 
So it must follow immediately. The whole universe has a cause for its existing. And then you need to add that this cause is God. Now that's something that Aquinas gives us, but it actually goes back to ancient Greek philosophy. Now, premise one is the premise people often question. Everything that exists has got to have a cause for its existing. Well, there are all sorts of things that exist um, that perhaps you think don't have a cause. You might have a certain view about free will um, and action, such that your actions are not caused. Or what is, and this is a very tricky one, what does quantum mechanics say in the case of indeterminacy? And then you've got the philosopher David Hume, who thinks about things coming uh, spontaneously into existence without any cause. And then you've got the question, well, you're trying to draw a conclusion to God, but what is the cause of God? Nothing. I mean, if you admit that God exists, then he's got a, there's got to be a cause for his coming into existence. One kind of response would be, well, he's self-causing. But that's, um, <laughs> that's a tricky thing. But, but, but here's another one that used to exercise me when I was young, and another version of it. Um, you often think back down a causal chain, and it seems to go back and back and back, and it never stops. Well, if it does stop, then the starting point is said to be God. But if, it, if you say it never stops then how does anything get going in the first place? You just go back and back and back. Well, Bradley looks into this and shows that we quite easily have mistaken views about infinity and infinite, infinite series, and there's a way of dealing with this. Um, so there's, there's the cosmological argument. And then, just finally, I'll mention what's called the design argument or the teleological argument, in which uh, we notice that the world has got lots of intricacy, complexity, um, laws govern it, and so on. Uh, the example that's often given here is of, uh, that comes from Paley's argument here, is that someone is walking along the heath and comes across a watch, which is complex, intricate, keeps regular time, and so on. So what explains this? Um, you've got a number of hypotheses. Uh, here are two. The first hypothesis is that Things which have all this order in, and in, in intricacy must have a designer. Or all these things just come into existence randomly. Well, if those are your only two hypotheses, you might say, well, that, that there are lots of things in the world with order and intricacy and so on. Given a designer, it's going to be pretty high probability that they exist. But a very low probability if uh, these things just come into existence randomly. So you conclude that God, or, or at least the existence of a designer, is a better explanation. But now, introduce Darwin's theory of evolution, and here's where all the argument starts. Does Darwin's theory of e evolution, once you look at all these facts around the world in biology, give a better explanation than the design one or the randomness one? And... Um, that now is a complex argument that is still being debated. In my view, Darwin himself was quite correct in dismissing this design argument because he thought that his own theory of evolution actually gave a better explanation. So there are three quick run through of three traditional arguments, and Bradley has a lot to say on them. He mentions the fine-tuning argument, which is another one out of physics, but let's not get into that one. <laughs> Okay. Uh, he also gets into the problem of evil in this chapter, uh, our susceptibility to disease and disaster. Do you want to touch on that at all, and this question of whether God is incapable? or That comes up in greater detail um, in his Chapter 6, Logic of Hell okay. and Dam Damnation. That's true. Shall yeah. we leave it for that? Uh, sorry, what was that? Uh... Shall we leave it for uh, Chapter yes, 6? Yes, yes, okay then. Okay. All right. So to move on to chapter five, uh, he turns to make a moral argument for atheism. Uh, a common claim made by the religious is that our morality must come from a deity. Uh, and they go on to assume then that atheists, having no gods to watch over them, basically, must therefore be essentially immoral or potentially willing to commit any sinful act, great or small. 
so Bradley starts by defining what we mean by morality. Um, can we start there? Yes. Um, uh, gosh, a definition of morality. That's a bit <laughs> hard to give. But, but he does start off with, with Dostoevsky's claim that if God doesn't exist, then everything is permitted. And he wants to say, well, that's wrong. Um, atheists uh, claim that there's no God. Yet it doesn't follow that atheists want to say everything is permitted. Um, so one needs to look into this Dostoevskian claim in a bit more detail. I mean, it's a, it's a kind of claim made against atheists that they can't be moral, but that's, that, that's totally wrong. They can be as moral as anybody else. Just take, for example, uh, the view of utilitarianism in which you say, well, let me only perform acts which either uh, don't increase any more suffering or at least in, increase um, the amount of happiness in the world. And that doesn't involve God at all, and atheists can just as well act on it. Um, but Br Bradley has a specific, specific moral argument against theism in which ends up being one of these inconsistent quadruples. <laughs> and I'll just try to spell this out a little bit. Um, okay. uh, the first bit says any act which God does condones or commands is morally permissible um, I, I think I'll just go through the premises of the argument and we can talk about each of the premises later okay. so the second one is the Bible reveals to us many of the acts which God does or condones or commands and then a view about our own personal morality. He says it's not morally permissible for anybody to do, condone, or command acts which violate our moral principles. So we're opposed to slavery, we're opposed to cannibalism, and so on. Now, the fourth thing is, the Bible does in fact tell us that God does condone or command acts which violate our moral principles. Now, there's four claims, and Bradley wants to say you can't um, hold them all together. Uh, he actually thinks we sh should accept the third and the fourth one, but uh, that then forces us to consider the first two premises. So let's just look at this again. Any act which God does, condones or commands us is morally permissible. Well, if you were to deny this, you'd claim that God condones or commands things which are not morally permissible. But God can't really do that if he's the moral being he's supposed to be. So the first premise just tells us God is a highly moral being. The second one says the Bible reveals many of the acts which God does, condones, or commands. So this um, means a lot of Bible research to actually tell us what it is that God has commanded or does or condoned. Um, if you deny that, then you want to say that the Bible is not the main way we get to know about what God's moral principles are. Um, in other words, we're at a complete loss. Uh, the third premise was um, it's not morally permissible to do any of the things that violate our moral principles. And so, Bradley, this is what they may be. Prohibit slaughtering of the innocent, putting people into sexual slavery, human sacrifice, cannibalism, endless torture, and so on. And Bradley goes into this in great detail and uh, cites in the Bible where you can find it all, which is all, which is all a bit shocking. Right. And, then, and then the fourth yeah. thing is the Bible does in fact tell us God um, violates these moral principles. So there we are. That's his argument. And uh, which do you give up? Um, well, Bradley wants to keep the third one uh, it's morally it's not morally permissible for people to do things which violate our moral principles, like putting people into sexual slavery. And then the fourth one is, well, that's just based on Bible research. So either then you conclude God is immoral, or the Bible really doesn't tell us what God's position is. Now, you've got to let these four things rattle around in your mind <laughs> as you work your way th through it. But... Um, uh, it's quite a strong argument. Um, I don't think it quite establishes atheism, but it's put, it puts pressure on the believer um, to wonder whether everything God does is morally permissible. 
which is a bit shocking, or the Bible really doesn't tell us the proper story. Yeah, and he talks too about the two strategies Christians do tend to take to this is either to uh, claim that those passages don't need to be taken literally, and you need some kind of special interpretation, which again falls back on the uh, reliability of the Bible and how to interpret it and, and why it couldn't have been clearer, um, or alternatively that the rules don't apply to God, which really throws into question the claim that God is... Oh, it does, yes, that's right. Mm. There are other considerations yeah. of philosophy Bradley doesn't mention. One I quite like comes from a dialogue by Plato called the Euthyphro, and here's an interesting question to think about. God issues commands. Uh, is something right because it simply fits God's commands, or does God command something because it's right? Uh, you've got to think about that one. And uh, there's a lot of yeah. commentary on this um, divine command theory of morality. Um, I think this point that you get in the Euthyphro uh, is very important, and it's quite damning. But uh, I just mention it because it's, it doesn't come up in Bradley's book. Well, one quote that I really enjoyed from this chapter, uh, Bradley asserts, holy is as holy does. I just I thought that was yes. it's very good, yes. very concise, right. And right to the point. Um, okay, uh, where do we go next? Chapter 6, is it? So chapter 6 grapples with understanding the implications of a belief in hell, primarily as it's depicted in Christianity. Uh, ultimately, Bradley shows that the concept of the Christian God, as characterized by Orthodox Christians, including leading theologians and philosophers of the faith, is self-contradictory, leading him to conclude that, quote, the existence of such a God is not just wildly improbable, but logically impossible. And he starts with a logical examination of the premise of hell in a metaphysical afterlife. Can you tell us some more about that? Oh, um, I'm not sure about this. I'm not quite strong on, I'm not very strong on hell and all of that. It's all right. It's just that um, the church these days um, tends not to put any emphasis on these things. You know, hell is, pro is probably your, is not a place of uh, fire and damnation, but rather your own conscience or something like that. And the Catholic Church has done away with limbo. Uh, so limbo is not there at all. So these views are altering. Which makes sense to me, because they just invented that in the Middle Ages. So I think to people who have access to the text, it'd be a lot harder to defend these days. But it was a, it was a response to a problem. You know, what about children who had committed no sins? Where do they go? Right. <laughs> well, you can put them in limbo. Uh, so there's no fire to suffer from. But Bradley actually mentions a lot about what's in the Bible about hell and its fires. And he says in the New Testament alone, there are 162 references, he gets this from a scholar, to hell and fire. And 70 of these can be attributed to Jesus, which is quite strong stuff. Um, now, what Bradley gives us is a particular case of a general argument from evil. Now, um, the existence of a omniscient, omnibenevolent, uh, and omnipotent God is always recognized to raise serious problems for why there's evil in the world. And so what Bradley gives us is a version of this in which hell is the particular case. So let me just mention what his argument is. He says, God is a morally perfect agent to whom we can also attribute responsibility for his acts. So it's not as if he's morally irresponsible. He's morally perfect. That's omnibenevolent. Secondly, God's acts are free. He's not constrained by anything. Uh, and this is due to God being all-powerful, that is omnipotent. And then thirdly, there are no constraints on God which make it impossible for him to create a world in which there's no evil. Creating these things is quite possible for God. So it's quite possible for God to make a hell. Fourthly, by virtue of his omniscience, his all-knowing powers, God would know just how evil hell can be were it to be created. And then, fifthly, he claims, it is in fact, according to the religious, God did create a world in which the evils of hell do exist, and he and could well 
uh, have not created such as a hell, but he didn't. So God is morally responsible for the evils of hell. Now, uh, that's Bradley's argument, and you've got a lot of Christian apologetics, which Bradley discusses, trying to get out of this difficulty. Um, quite, a, quite a serious problem. So, mm-hmm. so this general issue about evil in the world and the omnipotent God comes up in the case of the existence of hell, where we suffer eternally. Now, a Christian apologetics gets to work on this kind of thing and wants us to reconstruct what hell might be, or you can get out of hell after a while, and, and so on. And Bradley has a very long discussion, which we can't really go into, with two leading um, Christian apologist philosophers, Alvin Plantinga and William Craig, who want to defend the fact that God could create such an evil place as hell. But Bradley says, well, this is a serious problem for the good God or the gentle Jesus. Mm-hmm. Right. So that that's mm-hmm. well worth reading and thinking about and looking at his confrontation between Plantinga and Craig, whom I, I know in the case of Craig, he's had a public debate with him on issues ra- rather okay. like this. Right. All right. All right. Well, we'll leave that as a teaser oh, yes. to encourage people to go out and get the book and, and read the details. Yeah, because I, I think a lot of people who, when they get to know about hell, are struck by the horror of it and wonder how they can reconcile it with uh, the good God that's supposed to exist. Yeah. It doesn't all add up. I would agree. All right. Well, we'll turn to Chapter 7 then. Um, and this goes back to this uh, question of, metaphysical the met- possibility of the metaphysical persistence of a consciousness or something after the body has died uh, because of course heaven and hell presupposes that our consciousness survives past death it's a crucial pillar of religious belief as well of course and uh, bradley rebuts the standard philosophical arguments in favor of this idea of the survival of the consciousness past death and he proposes his own version um, he ultimately argues that survival is metaphysically impossible and that the existence of a soul or mind after one's body is, uh, and this is a fantastic um, metaphor, is as fanciful, or a simile, I should say, it is as fanciful as Lewis Carroll's idea of the Cheshire Cat's <laughs> yes. grin existing after its body. That's is right, gone. yes. Mm. So, you know, one of the things that's exercised humans, what how did we come into existence, and what happens to us after we die? Well, um, let me just say that the Roman Catholic Church, um, the last 50 years or so, but especially under Pope John II, has agreed with the theory of evolution. Um, now, Protestants, lots of them, still don't agree with the theory of evolution, but the Roman Catholic does. So there's what they call body evolution. But what the Catholic Church wants to insist upon is that at some point, either at conception or just before birth, there is a pre-existing soul which kind of docks into our body stuff and we become some unity of physical stuff, which the theory of evolution can describe, and uh, spiritual stuff or soul stuff. And that's what we are during our human life, and then at death, uh, the soul departs, wanders off somewhere else. So you've got a an independent soul um, existing, according to Roman Catholics. Now, this is a dualistic position that has been around for a long, long time, and it's, I think, part of the Christian view uh, in, that you get in the Bible. It's also discussed in ancient Greek philosophy. Um, Plato discusses it, but gives some good arguments against it. And Aristotle discusses it, but denies that uh, the mind, as he calls it, or the Greek word is suke, psuche, or psyche, the animator, can exist independently of the body. So this is an old argument that Bradley gets into. And um, he adopts a position of what you might call the emergence of the mental, or mental properties out of the physical. Now, um, this is hotly disputed amongst philosophers who work in the theory of mind. Uh, but what can you think about uh, this view of the mind suddenly emerging? 
Well, if you think of the world just starting off as random particles zooming around, coming together to form complex molecules, and then the complex molecules coming together to form cells, and then the cells forming multicellular creatures and so on, you might wonder, are there going to be some properties that come into existence with this growing complexity at the physical level? There are going to be some new properties which the physical stuff doesn't have. Now, Bradley's definition of an emergent property is this. He says, consider a collection or arrangement of parts and the whole they make up. Then a property is emergent means the whole possesses this property, but none of the parts do. Now, what might this be like? You know, at what point when chemicals come together to form cells and then multicellular creatures, might you say that something mental comes into existence, like having perception or having an appetite? Um, th this is the quandary. And then as things get more complicated, you're going to have uh, large-scale animals like ourselves, cats and dogs and so on, who seem to not only have experience, uh, but ability to move themselves around. They have appetites, but they also can think and plan and reason. And Bradley would say all of these are emergent properties. So that's Bradley's doctrine, and it's controversial. What happens, though, when you die is this, and perhaps it's best explained by Plato when he talks about this argument uh, in terms of what he calls attunement. Imagine someone who's got a musical instrument like a lyre, and you so adjust the strings that they're completely uh, attuned, but then misadjust one of them and they go out of attunement. And being attuned is a physical arrangement of, of um, stretching the strings, but being out of attunement is a different kind of physical arrangement. So the physical stuff still exists, but attunement can come into existence and go out of it. And that's a nice analogy to think of um, in the case of Bradley, where uh, our mental properties can come into existence when our chemical parts are properly attuned in inverted commas, but they'll go out of existence when they're not properly attuned. And that's how he thinks of our... Um, minds or souls. And then what, what happens at death? Well, um, you've still got the physical stuff, but it's not in the proper attuned arrangement. And so the mental just disappears. This emergent property goes. So it's not as if there's a soul left to go off somewhere else, as the Catholics still insist, even though they believe a lot of the evolution story. Um, there just isn't that sort of thing there. So this turns on a metaphysical argument about reduction and emergence and how you meant to explain, uh, give an account of naturalism where you've got complexity coming into existence and so on. So in reading this, you may not necessarily accept Bradley's emergence view, but it's a very nice account of what emergence is. Excellent. It does make a lot of sense. Um, I think most of us would look around the world and just see so many other examples of exactly this kind of functioning. I'm looking at my computer right now. It's the same thing. The smallest thing goes out of attunement. The whole thing doesn't work. <laughs> so, yeah. That <laughs> That's right, sense. yeah. So, so, so our, our mental properties are just like that. They emerge out of the foundational complexity. Now, the big problem is um, in this is to explain what emergence actually is and um, a lot of interesting philosophy. Uh, does Bradley go into this? Uh, he recognizes, in talking to him about it, he recognizes that his view is not the standard one. Okay. But it's a nice way to think of it because it does fit in very well with uh, arguments that Plato and Aristotle considered about why we might not have a mind or a soul that continues to exist after our bodily death. It's also consistent with science as it progresses. Uh, because oh, yes. the more we learn yeah. about the brain, the more we learn that, it, that, that our mental functions are very embodied. So the idea yes. that we would be able to think, conduct thoughts, or maintain our personality without the body just becomes increasingly silly-sounding. So, That's right. Yeah. yeah. I mean, what, one of the important things that people are looking into now, we've got um, 
ways of doing it is to look what's going on in the brain through um, um, magnetic, magnetic resonance machines and so on to get pictures of what's going on in the brain and correlate them with what people's experiences actually are. And there's a lot of material on this, but you need to get somehow or other, um, even though you can have these correlations between the physical and the mental, and we know a lot more about it, um, that still treats the physical and the mental as two separate things that interact with one another. And what you need to do is develop um, a theory that makes them much more unified. It's it's it might be possible for people to embed all embed all that in a dualist point of view, that is a, a separate physical mind point of view, but I rather doubt it. But but it is still a problem that's not resolved in the philosophy of mind about once you know about all these interactions, where do you go from there about the status of the mind itself? And can you fully reduce it to the physical or in Bradley's view, it's it's not reducible, but it's emergent, but not so independent that it could have an independent existence. So there's, right. there's the tricky stuff. Oh well, I'll turn now to um, to the final chapter, chapter eight, and he in this chapter he looks specifically at some of uh, what he call or what I think the people call themselves liberal Christians. The term that occurred to me is that they sound revisionist quite a bit. But um, so he he turns his attention to this special breed of apologist in his final chapter. Um, uh, this group tends to be- disbelieve the supernatural aspects of religion. You kind of um, mentioned that before. They see Jesus in the Bible as myths or just parables that offer valuable moral advice. Uh, but as Bradley points out, their arguments tend to rely on vague claims as well as they seem to lean a lot on the invention of bold new meanings for old terms. So just kind of playing with language. So can you tell us about that? Okay. Well, the people that Bradley attacks in his final chapter uh, are people like Paul Tillich, Bishop John Robinson, who was an Anglican bishop prominent in the 1960s, I think, and then an American still going, Bishop John Selby Spong, someone at Cambridge called Don Cupid, and then here in New Zealand, our own person called Lloyd Gearing, who's pushed many of these views. So I won't discuss Lloyd Gearing, but I just might say a little bit about some of these other people. Now, now I um, think in some respects this chapter can be amusing. <laughs> it depends on your attitude towards it. But uh, he he says that um, our misuse there's a misuse of language going on here. I don't quite always agree with Bradley on this, but it's interesting to keep this in mind. And he appeals to Alice in Wonderland and his encounter with Humpty Dumpty, who tells Alice that he's going to use words in any way he wants to use them. Just to quote Humpty Dumpty, when I use a word, it means just what I choose it to mean, nothing more or less. And, of course, Alice is perplexed by this and simply fails to understand him. Now, it's rather hard to argue with Humpty Dumpty if he's going to use words just the way he wants to. And um, Bradley claims that, well, modern theologians are just like this. Elsewhere, Bradley talks of word games in various theological traditions, and this is being Humpty Dumptyed all over again. <clears throat> so let's see how this might come about. Paul Tillich. Now, he's a German-American Christian existential philosopher and theologian. And according to Bradley, he wishes to define God as follows, rather unlike the personal God of most religion. Now, I think if you were to attend Christian churches, you'd get uh, the view of a personal God rather like us, but more so. But for Tillich, this is a quote from Tillich, or at least from uh, out of Bradley. He says, God is... Um, the name of this infinite and inexhaustible depth and ground of all being is God. So God is an infinite and inexhaustible depth and ground of all being. What the heck is that? <laughs> now, Bradley asks, um, <laughs> what is infinite and inexhaustible here? And what's it to be so deep and what's a ground? It's all obscure. So you're being Humpty Dumpty here, perhaps. Now, far be it from me wanting to help Tillich out of the difficulty, but I think there's a way of understanding Tillich. 
and it can go when you when you look at the idea of ground and it's really a version of the cosmological argument that i mentioned earlier but it's it's a different version of it now the idea is that god is not so much a cause that goes back and back and back into the past but god is a presence right now that causes things to be in existence and that's the ground now here's an analogy uh, what sustains us in existence well oxygen food and so on and then you could ask well what sustains oxygen in existence and what sustains food in existence and you can go on and on and on but the answer the cosmological argument wants to give here is that god is currently sustaining all these things in existence so god is pretty busy keeping everything going every electron that goes around a nucleus is going by god uh, the fact that there's oxygen here for me to breathe um, is being sustained by god and so on so that's what i think tillich might mean by ground though you've got to be careful that you're not being humpty dumptied now if, if you look at i'll tell you what's immediately a problem with this right the scope of the claim is everything that exists god sustains in its existence well what about the concentration camps of the holocaust and the flames of the, of the holocaust what sustains them in existence well the same argument would apply to god god is the cause of the flames god is the cause of the working of the of cyclone b that was used to kill people and so on so if you go down this line in which you sustain in which you claim that god sustains everything which exists then you've got a problem of evil arising immediately namely god is also sustaining evils and you come back to a previous chapter of bradley where god is a sustainer of hills as well now that's my gloss on tillich am i right i don't know uh but bradley would advise me to watch it unless i get humpty dumpty upon so that's tillich bishop john robinson okay. again i'm taking this from bradley now tillich spoke about um god being a matter of our ultimate concern or what we take seriously without reservation now that's very unlike any you know, of the traditional arguments that are given for god's existence but you could ask yourself what does ultimate concern mean here and let's hope this is not to trivialize it you know my ultimate concern might be a golfer or a millionaire or to be a terrorist or whatever god can come all too easily so you need to say what these ultimate concerns are and of course in doing so um you've got to bear in mind the case of the atheists who can have ultimate concerns about the world and life and so on but they need not involve god so you've got an issue here about how you mean to understand tillich but robinson gives us a version of tillich's grounds of being and he says and this is a quote from bradley gold god is ultimate reality and when cannot argue whether or not there is ultimate reality boy that's defining god into existence straight off you know what ultimate reality is i have no idea um is it forces and fields postulated in physics or or, or whatever but um uh, you know we all think that there's something that exists outside us um and god is that and that's what ultimate reality is so if this is what bishop robinson's definition is then bradley is going to advise us watch out for being humpty dumptied here and an argument rather like this might put you in mind of uh, anselm's ontological argument where existence is uh, sort of conjured into existence by the argument well i think anselm perhaps makes a better case than um, bishop robinson and then finally spong uh spong is influenced by tillich and bradley tells us spong says god is the ground of being itself well that's the ground that's the idea that god supports i suppose every existent thing in it, in its existence so there's a version of the cosmological argument going on here bradley doesn't address this uh, version of the cosmological argument but it's around in other critical works in the same vein bradley looks at don cupid and lloyd gearing i won't go into these but uh, the the main thing he wants us to be careful about is um our use of language 
what we're saying and what we're trying to define here. And, you know, don't run away too quickly with um, weird ideas. Excellent. Okay. Well, Robert, we've taken up a lot of your time. I want to thank you very much for doing this. So before we go, though, can you tell us what you are currently working on? Uh, Well, I just retired uh, from teaching at the University of Auckland here for 47 years. And um, I'm just doing some miscellaneous things. But uh, because I'm a kind of active atheist, I get asked to do atheist-type things. So one thing I thought of doing is writing a collection of stuff. I've published some of it, but I need to put it together. And I I wanted to argue... Uh, first of all, religion is owed no respect. This is this is this is something that um, comes up with people claim you've got to give religion whatever that means respect. But I also want to claim and that would be chapter two. Religion is to be tolerated. So um, I, th- I think uh, I think okay. tolerance is consistent with not having respect. And then I want to say something about what secularism is. And I want to say something about offensive speech and so on. Now, these are not the traditional atheist topics that Bradley considers, but I think they're important ones that emerge now for us, especially when atheists try to confront the religious and they've got to deal with, you know, you're not being disrespectful towards religion or you're not being tolerant and so on. These things need a bit more discussion. Well, I haven't got on to those themes exactly. I'm doing other things at the moment. But if I were to get into the religious stuff, that's what I'd do. Excellent. Well, I hope you would think of us if you do end up publishing that book. Okay, then. Yes, I will. (laughs) Okay, excellent. Well, again, let me thank you for coming on the show today and discussing this book with me. I really enjoyed it. And uh, Right. Well, look, thank thank you for the invitation and glad to have done it and done my little bit for Bradley, who can't be here. So, so all the best. Cheerio, bye.